Black Doctors Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. I am Stephen, your host. I am an anesthesiologist and critical care medicine physician by training with some additional training in clinical medical ethics. And for the last couple of years, I have hosted this podcast, again, with the efforts to increase diversity and representation in the healthcare workforce. We are two episodes now into season eight. Today, I'm going to go over a couple of current events that are relevant to physicians and other healthcare providers. And then it is July of 2023. Across hospitals nationwide, there are new interns, new resident physicians that are beginning their training process. And uh, I know you can look everywhere and find online different tidbits and lists of advice for interns. I'm going to summarize some of the more pertinent pieces of information and things that helped me along the way. Um, And that's going to be the second half of the episode and probably three, well, probably 10 general pieces of advice for new resident physicians. And then probably two or three topics that I found particularly helpful and things I learned the hard way um, when I was going through the process myself. Some things that are relevant to those that identify as underrepresented in medicine, Black physicians. Um, things to expect and look out for that you may or may not encounter, but you can hopefully be um, more prepared for should you encounter some of those situations. So stay tuned. Uh, it's going to be a great episode. Thanks for joining us once again on the Black Daughters Podcast. There is a new social media venue in the market. Uh, I think last week, Instagram dropped threads. A lot of people have migrated over there. It's kind of in a response, I guess, to Twitter. There's been a lot of things going on on Twitter since uh, Elon Musk took over, uh, mostly for the worst. It's always been threats of something bad happening to Twitter and it being shut down. I think most recently they were kind of throttling and limiting the number of tweets people are able to see. Uh, Out of the blue, here comes Threads by Instagram. Basically, you take your Instagram account, you can port everything over into a new Threads account, and it has a timeline very similar to Twitter. I do have an account on Threads. Everybody's kind of jumping on board. Almost feels like, what was the name of that social media back during the pandemic? It was, yeah, it almost felt like a resurgence of Clubhouse. That was that, I guess, short-lived social media venue that kind of popped up during the pandemic where it was all audio. I, I guess people were still on it. I don't know. I haven't been on it. It was really huge um, a couple of years ago when people were doing all these clubhouses and talks and all this other stuff. But so now Instagram has, has threads. Curious, you know, if you're, if, I'm, if you're on threads, follow me. I don't, I don't know if I'm going to really get into it. The big thing for me, for Twitter, for all the things that I love and hate about Twitter, med Twitter was such a, a toxic environment. And it's actually very difficult to have open conversations on Twitter because you're kind of end up getting into like little sparring matches with random people. And then people you don't know start talking to you crazy. And it's like, well, you know, I don't talk to people I don't know in that in that fashion. But for me, uh, Twitter was always helpful because it did give me diversity of opinions. And I got to see what was kind of going on in the world of emergency medicine and cardiac surgery, some things that are kind of aligned or adjacent to my role and practice as an anesthesiologist and critical care physician. So that was what I used Twitter predominantly for. Having been on threads, unfortunately, what, what seems to have happened is every everybody I'm following on Instagram is now on threads. So it's now like Twitter version of my Instagram feed. 
So it hasn't been super rewarding so far. People are still kind of trying to figure out what to make of it. I don't know if I'm going to stick around for long because, you know, it's another social media stream and, and I already spend too much time on my phone and I do try to cut back from time to time. So we'll see what becomes of threads. It's a little more difficult to navigate and again, kind of have these um, uh, conversations like are happening on Twitter usually. So We'll see where where uh, Zuckerberg at all go. I guess there's a lawsuit pending between Zuckerberg and uh, Elon Musk. There, that kind of whole situation is a lot too expensive for me to even get involved in. I'm going to stay in my lane. We'll see how it unfolds. Another news that is relevant to the healthcare community. You may have heard of Spotify. You may have heard of one of the co-creators of Spotify, Mr. Daniel Ek. So he launched early in July. They raised $65 million for kind of a new healthcare company. It's called Nico Health. This health tech startup was co-founded by Daniel Ek, who is the co-founder of Spotify. They got millions of dollars in their first round of funding. And essentially what this company does is they provide full body CT scans that are backed up by AI software. They also have a team of healthcare providers. They didn't say which type, physicians, uh, nurses, nurse practitioners. Allegedly, they will be able to provide the scan on demand. You pay cash, they scan you, and then their team of experts are going to look at the scan and evaluate you for any healthcare conditions or things you need to get worked up on. Allegedly, this AI software helps their team of physicians detect skin conditions, including cancer, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and other metabolic syndromes. Um, each scan takes about 10 minutes and costs 250 euros, based upon how the euro was just under 300 bucks, I believe, uh, in US, depending on how the euros, um, depending on how the euro is doing. After you get your scan, you're going to have an in-person consultation, as previously mentioned. The company is currently headquartered in Stockholm. They have a team of uh, over 30 physicians, researchers, technicians uh, spread across Europe and has a list, a waiting list already with people waiting to get scanned. So their mission statement, I guess, in, in talking about why they're doing what they're doing, their uh, CEO says that healthcare costs are spiraling out of control. And they think preventative health will be key to reversing this trend. Um, it's ironic. I mean, it's definitely the things that have been being said in conversations here in the States as well, that we need to focus on preventative care. We need to empower and pay those physicians that are working in those roles. Unfortunately, preventative care isn't very well funded. And physicians in primary care are very much underpaid for the huge role they play in the health of a community and the health of an individual patient going to be interesting to see where this goes. It's also interesting that, you know, in Europe, a lot more of the healthcare is um, subsidized by the by the government and kind of healthcare for all. A lot of the healthcare in Europe is funded by the government and provided for its citizens. And then there's always the option for kind of self-pay or seeing a private physician if, if you wish, if you want to pay a little bit extra. And this delivers that technology right to your door or to the clinic where you sign up, you go down, you get scanned, and then you're going to look over the scan. I think our radiologists uh, everywhere are, are probably not rejoicing, thinking about all the incidental omas that are going to be found. There's going to be so many things that are, that are going to pop up on these scans. I wasn't able to fully see 
what kind of scans you're talking about because obviously like a CT scan from the little bits of radiology that I've learned throughout the years isn't the best to, to identify uh, skin cancer per se or uh, metabolic syndrome, right? So I don't know if it's some new scan or some combination of scans or they PET scanned as well as CTs or MRIs um, to be determined. Maybe it's just proprietary or maybe it's some new age, like uh, I think the movie with, um, is it Brad Pitt or Matt Damon, somebody, Elysium, where they like all the rich people move off of Earth into a spaceship and then people can get healed there and everybody's poor on Earth. And uh, maybe that's what, this Nico Health is trying to build. Anyways, I digress. So those are two of the things that are kind of going on in the the news right now, things that are adjacent to healthcare, things to be aware of. But it is July and we have to talk about those resident physicians that are starting their practice, starting residency across the country. Um, interns, PGY1s, I've always just called them residents or PGY1s. I know different hospital systems will like give you a badge that says intern and and label it. And, you know, that, uh, you know, that can lead to a bit of a stigma, in my opinion. Um, there's, you know, different terminology, but whatever the case, a lot of people are starting their medical training. If that's you, congratulations. Um, you're in for a wild ride. There's going to be highs. There's going to be lows. You're going to learn a ton of uh, information. It can actually be enjoyable. I had a blast in residency. I was fortunate to have a really good group of co-residents. I finished medical school back in 2014. I attended Howard for medical school, went to University of Chicago for my residency in anesthesiology. I was there from 2014 to 2018, went to the Navy for four years. So I was in the Navy from 2018 to 2022. And then came back to the University of Chicago for a fellowship in critical care medicine, which I just finished. So from 2022 to 2023, I was back as a fellow. So I've I've seen graduate medical education from all angles. Uh, I've seen the good, the bad, the ugly. And I was fortunate to overall have a really good time. I had fantastic co-residents, co-fellows, attendings. And uh, a couple of bumps in the road, which I'll probably talk about a little later in the episode. But, you know, I literally just saw some of my co-residents two weeks ago as I was leaving Chicago. We have a group chat that we talk at least uh, a couple times a week. We're discussing cases or things related to anesthesia, but really made some lifelong friends in residency. So we're going to start off with kind of 10 general pieces of advice for new residents. A lot of these are actually applicable wherever you are in uh, whatever stage of training, as well as even if you're an attending physician or, or a fellow. So clear communication is number one. You'll see how crucial communication is and ultimately comes down to affecting the healthcare that we provide patients and even patient outcomes. Effective communication is crucial in healthcare as well as in, in life, relationships, family, all that. You need to be proactive and seek guidance when you're discussing care plans, for example, or, or assessments and plans with your, your attending or your senior residents. Ask questions, provide updates. Communication goes back and forth. It goes two ways. And this ensures teamwork. You're being assessed with kind of every interaction, especially as you start out. So your attendings, your senior residents, your fellows, as they give you tasks or you see patients, you need to have that communication, that feedback. 
and that provides some um, comfort to them that over time they'll see what you're able to pick up on and what they can trust you with, what tasks they can uh, kind of put on autopilot and and have full confidence that you as that resident can take over and take care of that task and nothing's going to be dropped. But without clear communication, that will never get off the ground. During residency, number two, you need to embrace this growth mindset. Remember, you are there to learn. I know there's a lot of uh, information drama on Twitter and med Twitter about residency salaries and unionization. And there's all these things. Are we underpaid in residency? Sure. We should be making a lot more money based upon you know, how much the hospital profits off of us. But as a resident, you know, especially starting out, you sign the contract, you're going to get paid that salary. If the opportunity to unionize exists, that's cool. If you get your cost of living increase, that's cool. But probably in the first six months of, of residency, um, you probably shouldn't be out campaigning to, to make more as a resident. You should probably be focused on growth and learning and helping patients. All, there, there's times to lobby and vote and all that stuff. And, and, and as it presents itself, by all means, take advantage of that. Um, but you want to kind of focus on just, you know, carving up that space for you and and building your practice initially. So embracing that growth mindset, remember, you are here to learn. It actually ends up being a very short period of time that you're in residency. A lot of the time, I know the surgery folks and the neurosurgery, you guys with your five and seven year residencies, it's um, a stretch to say that it, it's a short time. But it's really a lot that you're going to learn in a very short amount of time. Um, you're going to be continuously learning and growing. You're going to be receiving feedback. You're going to make mistakes. When you make mistakes, you want to learn from those mistakes, obviously, and then open yourself up to new challenges. Because, you know, I, I always say to myself, like the first day of residency, when I walked in, one of the, the mantras that I, I say is I'll never have another first day of residency. Um, next month, when you start that new rotation, whatever it is, whether it's in the ICU or breast surgery or more general OR for the anesthesia residents, you know, you will never have another first day of that service. So you're going to have a lot of first, embrace that, lean into it, learn from your mistakes, try to keep a positive attitude and a positive approach. And that can really help you maintain a positive experience as you continue to improve. Your mindset is is so huge and having that positive attitude because it's very tough as a as an attending, as a fellow, I've been in all of these roles. When you're dealing with someone, it's just nice to deal with people that are nice and happy. And if you're upset and pissed off at the world, like that's not fun. You're not a fun person to be around. Now, should you still be taught? Absolutely. Obviously, you know, if you're a grumpy resident or whatever, you're gonna be grumpy because you're you're barely sleeping, you moved to a new city, all of all of the above. But as much as you can, you try to not let that impact patient care it is a lot of customer service and you want to maintain that positive face for the patient as well as, you know, for the people that you work with. It's, it's no fun to work with uh, grumps. You want to prioritize your self-care. And I think that is definitely becoming more and more of an issue and a concern and a priority for people coming through the training pathways. I, I feel like I'm stuck in the middle where I can almost say back in my day, but obviously it used to be extremely, extremely malignant it's less malignant now, but there's still, you know, it, it's very easy to lose out on that self-care aspect when you're in the middle of a rigorous training program and you are capped at 80 hours a week and you're trying to fight for that golden weekend or whatever. 
So whatever it is, um, you know, residency is demanding, it's physically demanding, it's emotionally demanding. You want to prioritize your self-care. You want to get enough sleep, eat well, do activity that you like. Now I say that tongue in cheek because I, I don't sleep well at all. I usually get like four, four to five hours of sleep a night. I usually go to bed at midnight and get up at you know, four or five in the morning, whatever time I have to be in the ICU and the OR and I'm pissed off every morning when I wake up and wonder why I did anesthesia because I hate mornings. I am not a morning person. Um, you can ask my wife when I don't have to be at work, I will sleep in until 1130 or, or noon any given day. But if you can, ideally, you get uh, a fair amount of sleep, get your seven or eight hours of sleep, whatever you're supposed to get at night. And I guess that'll help you in the morning, even though I, I still detest mornings, no matter how much sleep I actually have. Um, but that's, sure, get some sleep if you can. Um, what else? Obviously, taking care of yourself, you can take better care of your patients. That sounds cute. You want to work on your time management skills. This is huge. You're not just starting this in residency. Remember, all through undergrad, all through medical school, you had to develop these time management skills. You've had these, it's not new to you. Now, the workload has vastly increased, but now you got to find time to read about your patients. You got to find time to study for your step three and other exams as they come up. You got to find time to, as I mentioned before, sleep, eat, all those things for self-care. So you really need to work on your time management skills, specifically at work. If you can figure out how to efficiently see patients and write notes and do the learning in real time, I just saw my friend Michelle Fletcher as I was checking out a residency at University of Chicago. I have a picture of her on my Instagram and her husband, Kirk, some of the nicest people you ever meet. But I remember when I was an intern, I was so overwhelmed. I came to University of Chicago. Now, I didn't really care about internal medicine because I was going to do anesthesia, right? That's what a lot of prelim folks kind of come in thinking, don't don't think that, really invest in that um, opportunity to learn. I really quickly, you know, changed my mindset. But I remember being in general medicine at the GENs, what they called it, University of Chicago, and the floors were all like messed up random numbers. I started at a different hospital as we, we rotate to two clinical sites during my residency program. And when I come to University of Chicago, now I got to learn the new floor layout. And they've got these weird numbers and, and it's not like a linear, you know, rooms one to 10. When I got my stack of patients, my, pap my, my papers were all out of order. I had, you know, eight patients and I would try to see everybody before rounds, but there's times where I would go, you know, to the fourth floor and see two people. Then have to go down to the third floor and see a person. And then the next person I missed, I had to go back up to the fourth and I was just running around in little circles. And I remember Michelle because she was a fantastic uh, resident, became one of the chief residents in the medicine uh, department as well. But she'd gone there for medical school and she literally took my papers and she would look at each patient and which room they were in. And she laid them out and ordered, like Stephen, start here. You're gonna see this, this room, this room, this room. Then you go down to the third floor and see this patient, this patient, this one. And she did that for like the first, well, I don't even know how long she did it for, but she stepped in like right when I, I needed her the most and literally organized my entire life. And that allowed me that efficiency to actually see my patients before rounds. So you want to work on those time management skills, help a friend out if they're struggling like, like I was. 
You want to prioritize tasks, set realistic goals, and optimize your workflow. Every service, right, if you're in um, medicine, on the wards, or especially if you're in the ICU, and the ICU is pretty universal, you're going to round, you're going to have a bunch of tasks. Having worked in the ICU as a medical student, having worked in the ICU as a fellow, um, and as an, as an attending, I'm kind of being affiliated with the ICU. You'll see at the end of rounds, everybody tucks their heads into knocking out their notes and doing all these other ancillary tasks. There are going to be procedures and other things that are very time sensitive that you need to learn to prioritize and work those around your notes. Of course, that's attending specific. Some attendings want the notes in before rounds or at a specific time, but you're going to have senior residents, you're going to have attendings, fellows that are looking at the clock saying, hey, when can we put this arterial line in? When can we put in this central line? When can we do this? When can we do that? And over time, yeah, you will develop that 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 kind of uh, quarterback mindset, I guess, where you're watching the field. I don't really watch sports, but um, that time management really begins to develop, especially as you become more senior. But if you're an intern, you can pick it up. That's all much, all, all much. If you're an intern, you can pick that up. Then that, that's just much, much better. And you'll have a much easier time in residency and be more efficient, have more time to do the things that you want to do. One Another thing you can do in residency is um, look for mentorship. So as you're new to a facility, or maybe you stayed at your own facility, but you're in a new role, a new capacity, you want to look for people that can help guide you into the things that you want to do. Maybe you're, you're going to try to apply for a fellowship after you finish your primary residency training. Well, then look for somebody that's in that field that can help guide you and tell you which moves you need to make along the way. Which conferences do you need to go to? They can put you on papers and presentations. So keep an eye out for a mentor, somebody can help you professionally and to grow and develop into that um, position that you want to be one day. Embrace interdisciplinary collaboration. It is a team sport. Healthcare, we have physicians, we have advanced, we have uh, nurse practitioners, physician assistants as members of the healthcare team. And uh, for anesthesia, you have, as a resident, you have nurse anesthetists that are in the OR as well. So a lot of residents, you know, you go in and you see what's on Reddit or Twitter, and there's uh, drama and beef between uh, roles and scope creep, quote unquote, and and what is the role of a, a PA or a nurse practitioner or a nurse anesthetist? And you have to realize, especially coming in as an intern, that that is not a battle or a fight that you want to have. As institutions, it takes a long time to hire a nurse practitioner, a physician assistant, a nurse anesthetist. And if you come in as a resident who's been there for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, heck, even if you're you know more senior in your in your residency, just know that the institution realizes that you're going to be there for three, four, five years. Meanwhile, they're going to have to deal with, um, you know, a steady workforce as residents come and go. So that's not a fight that you want to start. That's not something, someplace you want to put yourself in between an institution and their employees, right? The uh, NPs, PAs, they have chosen to work with this institution. They can leave whenever they want. There's sure some kind of contract, but they can walk with their with their feet. So if you, you know, want to want to get in between them and the institution, we are entitled to make whatever decisions that we want. We do, uh, unfortunately, not have full control over the consequences 
or a ramification of the decisions that we make. So I'm just saying, especially starting out, it's probably not a spot you want to be in. Now, where I draw the line is at education, because in residency, you are there to learn. So if your education is being impacted by other um, healthcare professionals, then that is something that there are avenues to take, talking with your department leadership, talking with your residency leadership, graduate medical education, there's surveys, there's all those things that you can um, take advantage of to ensure that your education isn't being impacted. But be very careful, tread lightly on making the institution choose between their employees and you as a as a learner. You want to try to develop and maintain these positive working relationships with all members of the healthcare team. The other thing that uh, comes up often is this, um, you know, listen to the nurses. Everybody says that. It's, it's a cool quote. Everybody puts that up every July. Listen, just do what the nurses say. And it's uh, for me, it's a little more nuanced because I have had great advice from nurses. I have had not so great advice from nurses. I think the issue at hand is when you become a physician, you now have the power to prescribe medications, procedures, all kinds of things. You have the power. And yes, you're going to be in a ton of situations where all of the book knowledge that you have, you're faced with, with it at the bedside and you don't know what to do. You can turn to that bedside nurse that's been there for 15, 20 years and say, hey, what do you normally do in a situation? And they're going to hopefully be supportive and be like, oh yeah, we normally do this. Cool. The hangup is knowing that you have the power, knowing that you are going to sign that order and your name is forever connected with the order and the downstream ramifications and outcomes of what you just ordered or prescribed, the medication that you administered. And that is a very heavy burden to bear and to carry. And absolutely, by all means, think about the things that you're prescribing. So what usually and what usually worked for me is it's not so much as listening and doing whatever the nurse says, it's listening to and validating that nurse's concerns is just as much as you'd validate the concerns of a co-resident or co-intern. Um, you'd listen to your senior residents, your, your attendings. If your attending physician told you to do something that was detrimental to a patient that would cause harm, that was um, like unequivocally malpractice. You would be liable if you follow follow those orders. So the same same thing with a nurse or a co-resident or or fellow. So ultimately, you are responsible, and it's okay. Talk to the staff around you. Try and figure out what they normally do. If you go to different hospitals, you'll see that the uh, anti-biogram is different for different hospitals. So their go-to broad spectrum antibiotics are different. There's all these different nuances that are geographical as well as um, clinical. And people that work at that institution are very much there and able to help you. But don't get you know hung up on the, the nurse told me to write for a milligram and a half of Dilaudid because the patient's screaming in pain. Like, you know, you have to use that clinical judgment that you went to school for for a long time. You're probably going to, you, you can't make everybody happy Somebody's going to be upset with you at some point in intern year, but you are responsible for making sure that you do what's right for your patients and making sure that you, you know, cover your own butt, for lack of a better term. Um, and that goes, you know, for uh, your medical license and your evaluations that are coming from your physician, from your attendings and from your fellows. Occasionally, you know, I was a little different. Like there's this concept in medicine that you are protecting your attending. I think it's really heavy in the surgical world. 
they're attending once it's done and they'll like just go hard charge and like, wow, we want this patient, patient extubated right now. We want this and that and this and that, making all these demands. And I've always been very quick to be like, hey, when I'm calling consults, yeah, sorry, I know this doesn't make sense, but my attending really wanted to do X and Y. And I was always very quick to engage in, you know, or, or, or start attending to attending conversations. Because again, I didn't get paid to make these high level decisions. So why am I going to like double down and defend somebody's decision that I, I may or may not agree with, I may or may not understand. If you don't understand it, then you should ask and, and understand why they're they're doing what they're doing. But occasionally, right, you'll have, I've had patients in the ICU that didn't really meet the indication for dialysis, but my attending wants dialysis or the surgeon wants dialysis. And I'm stuck in the middle. Sure, I'll call dialysis. Hey, uh, my attending wants it. Oh, if you don't want to do it, then yeah, we'll have your attending talk to my attending and then they can figure it out. There's nothing malignant or, punit- or punitive. It's just, I, I'm not going to go back and forth when this is the attending's call and they can talk to them and they can, they can wrap it up. So I'm a little different in that regard. But, you know, it it's, doesn't have to be adversarial. So I like to say, you know, just play nice in the sandbox, get along well with other people as best you can, but you are responsible for the outcomes and the orders that you write. Um, another good thing to do in residency is to self-reflect when things are getting me down in residency or an intern year, or even in medical school, I would oftentimes just stop and think back to where I was a month ago. So for you folks that started on the first as an intern, you know, it's, we're a week and a half into your intern year at least. So you can look back and see how far you've come in a couple months. You can look back and be like, man, I am two months in and, and I've made it this far. I'm a big countdown person. Like I set timers and countdowns and it's not because I want experiences to be over quickly or faster. Sometimes that's the case, but it also reminds me that um, time is a very precious commodity and there's only so much time that we have. And as I look at the, the seconds tick away and the days and the weeks disappear from my calendar or my, my, my countdown, whether it was from leaving the Navy or finishing fellowship it was something that that helped me actually seize the day even more, enjoy the time that I was given, enjoy where I was. And I could look back and see how far I'd actually come. And that would help propel me forward. So just take the time to reflect on your experiences, different patient encounters you have. You've had the different uh, impacts of decisions that you've made along the way. And this will help you with your personal growth. This will help with self-awareness and help you to continuously improve. You also want to find your strengths, your weaknesses, and different areas that you can um, improve upon. Number eight in this list of 10 things for new interns is to develop effective study habits. I always recommend taking step three as early as possible. I took mine in August. Um, it It was rough. I think I've actually passed by one point. I would recommend doing better than that. But you're going to have all this knowledge from medical school that, you know, eventually, you know, if you're not doing obstetrics, you're going to probably start losing a lot of that information. So it's on the test and then pediatrics, all those things that are going to start to just disappear the further you get from medical school. So I've always recommended taking the test as soon as possible, but you're going to have to start studying for your intern exams and eventually your board exams. So develop these good study habits. You know, you have to go from actually working a job to studying for a little bit, you know, every day. These, uh, you know, find, a, find some habits, that, but you've also been studying for, you know, the last eight years. So you know how to 
make uh, study habits. The new thing is um, the current events, the journal articles, and eventually you'll get to that level, maybe after your first year or two years of residency. Um, initially, you know, you're just learning the hospital systems. You're transitioning between the book of medicine to the actual practice of medicine and seeing what, you know, how those two interact. And so you're going to focus on that mostly. You're going to focus on the, the basics. And then as time goes by and you have some additional time, you pass your boards. Sure, start looking at the journal articles. There's great uh, summary websites that are out there. So yeah, you'll make your study habits and, and you'll you'll do just fine. Maintain good work-life balance. That goes without being said. Don't need to really dig into that. And then finally, take care of your well-being. It's mostly taxing. It's draining. Uh, it can be fun. I had a really good time in residency. Uh, but you want to use available resources. Are you in a big city? Are there ways that you can escape? Go to museums, go to parks, green spaces, just somewhere. Uh, one of my attendees is going to one of the old salty dogs. You know, he would always say, sometimes you just need to kick your feet up and lay horizontal. And that was like, you know, you're in the middle of a 24-hour call. You're you're worn out, tired. Sometimes you just need to lay flat for a little bit, um, catch a, a second wind. So make sure you're taking time to provide for yourself. And uh, yeah, self-care is essential. Lastly, whether you're a new intern or current resident, fellow, attending even, one thing you want to look out for is um, your performance. You want to keep a, an eye on your evaluations and how well you're doing or, or how well you're not doing, I guess. Um, there are statistics, there's numbers. If you are underrepresented in medicine, you're basically the odds are against you. You've known that the odds have been against you since before you started on the journey. The odds are even worse now with the Supreme Court decision and affirmative action and all that. But um, how does it represent or how does it present in residency? In 2015, a study showed that although Black identifying residents only accounted for 5% of current residents at that time, they accounted for 20% of the residents that were dismissed from residency programs. And that was for a variety of reasons, but the moral of the story is to watch your back and beware of those reasons people are dismissed from residency. You need to look at your evaluations, you need to know what people are saying about you, what their opinion is, because it matters. Uh, I, I can share the story I've shared before from when I was a resident. I found out, uh, I, I made a couple mistakes, you know, internal mistakes, um, three that I can, that, that I remember that were like big deals. No patient harm occurred. And it was part of the learning process. But I found out that my senior resident was keeping a detailed list and document of every mistake that I made with hypotheses for why I was performing subpar compared to my peers. Shortly after finding out that this document existed, you know, I got called into the principal's office, sat down with the program director for the uh, internship. And this was not at the University of Chicago. I had a fantastic time at the, you know, the University of Chicago. We rotated to a different hospital. I've shared this in previous podcast episodes, but long story short, I got called in to the program director's office at this other hospital site that we were ro rotating through. I got sat down and, and uh, with the chief resident was there and they pulled up my academic record. They asked all kinds of questions. Okay, you went to Howard. Uh, did you struggle academically while you were at Howard? I'm like, well, you know, you have my 
board scores. Like, you know, what's going on? Why are you performing poorly here? Um, what can we do to help you? It just kept, you know, going on and on and on. And I realized in that moment, there were, there were comments, they, they, they quoted comments from other faculty members at this other institution. One was quoted as, as saying that, uh, I think we made a mistake on that one. And like, like they, the person talking to me, they told me that this was what was, what was said in the meeting. It was, it was wild. And I realized that as I was sitting down looking at this evidence, that I'm like, okay, they got me dead to rights. They got me pinned to the wall. And I was like, oh, you know, I could do better. I can do this. I can, I'll work harder. And I just like, uh, you know, bent over backward and, and, and said whatever. I said exactly what I think they wanted to hear. Um, you'll see, especially being a, a minority resident, if you identify as such, people want to help you. There's this thing about reaching out and being there to help you and, and, and to pull you up and to support you. They, they always want to be the helping hand. And so I, I played into that, like, yes, I can change, I can do better. And I did, you know, for the next, you know, every time I rotated at that hospital um, is, you know, very much lacking in diversity. But every time I rotated through that hospital, I gave 110%. And I was like, you know, you're not going to, I'm not going to give you any excuse, any additional excuse to treat me differently, to film me during this internship. Because even though, yeah, I'm actually an anesthesia resident, I'm not doing internal medicine. But I didn't want anything to, to, you know, I was so close to the finish line and get into that specialty um, training. I didn't want anything to derail those plans. So that was a lesson that I learned when it all broke loose. It was December of intern year. Um, I always just saw some emails from that. And it was uh, because of that situation, they changed my rotation schedule. That canceled the vacation I had that, that intern year. The intern year, I worked Thanksgiving, vacation, and Christmas. And I think I got like one of the New Year's days off because of this switch that was made. So I was going through it. Uh, in the middle of that situation, I ran into a person who I later learned anesthesia from, was a very good friend and mentor now, who I had no idea knew what was going on. But I happened to cross paths randomly, serendipity, faith, whatever you believe in. And he was there in that moment to give me the advice and the support that I, I needed. And I, I talked earlier about mentorship. Little did I know that he was so much in my corner that he, you know, here, here's another spoiler alert. There are clinical competency meetings as part of residency, right? Every six months or whatever, they're going to sit down and they're going to talk about residence. And if you're in a big program, they really don't want to talk about all of you, but they're going to talk about, especially if, if you're not performing well, they're going to talk about you. What can we do to help? And then when they determine that, oh, you're unsalvageable, then it's like, okay, what can we do to like help them out of here? But this attending knew of a situation. I confided in him and he was able to go to bat for me. There was a little network. Little did I know he talked to other attendings that I worked with that had rave reviews because I was an awesome intern. And uh, they put in, you know, in writing that I was actually performing quite well and on their rotations. And there's a whole network that was actually supporting me and had my back. But I reached out and had that mentorship and sponsorship that you'll need at some point in your career to, to be successful. So that was my story. Just be very cognizant how you're being perceived. Know what is being said about you in your evaluations, because that is some of the actionable items that they can use to either support you or to 
penalize you should it come to that. So thanks for tuning into the podcast. Um, you know, you know, in the process of scheduling some other interviews and getting some other folks on, we're going to hear some different perspectives of life from residents and attendings and, and different specialties. That's all to come in season eight of Black Talkers podcast. I am Steven, your host. Uh, congratulations if you are intern or, or brand new resident starting out. Buckle up, you're in for a wild ride. Love to hear your experiences. Just reach out and share. You can you can hire me on uh, Twitter, probably not on Threads, but sure you can send me a message there. Instagram, Stephen Bradley MD, or the Black Dyers Podcast, and then keep an eye on the websites. Going to hopefully get around to updating those websites and and getting those uh, I don't know, a little little shinier, a little nicer. There's uh, hopefully going to be some ways for you to talk back and we can hopefully get your voice on the show as well. But until next time, I'm Stephen, your host. Thanks for tuning in to the Black Daughters podcast. We're here because representation matters.